Hello and welcome to the Business of Authority. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And today we're going to talk about deciding to be the best in the world. Yes. Not how to, but deciding <laughs> to. Yeah, the how to is like sort of like the all of our episodes put together, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> well, so I, I really wanted to talk about this today because I finally read Seth Godin's book, The Dip. And I was fascinated by his concept of what is worth crossing the dip. So the dip is kind of like the desert that you have to cross to get to Mecca, right? Mm -hmm. On the other side are all the riches you get from doing all the hard, dirty, nasty work of the dip. Now, Seth's point in the book is that it's only worth going through the dip if you're focused on being the best of the in the world at at your thing, whatever that is. Mm -hmm. Because if you're not focused on being the best in the world, then you're likely to quit inside the dip. And all that energy that you used is wasted. Or even if you stick with it and you come out the other side, you're not going to be the best in the world. So the question that I think is really interesting is, are you committed to being the best in the world at this thing? And then if you're not, he argues, well, quit now. So you can go find something that's worthy of the effort because everything worthy has a dip to it. Right. Yeah, there's a ton going on there. It's like, it's about, it's sort of um, advocating for quitting in certain circumstances, which is Mm -hmm. not something you hear very often. And it is sort of, um, it's a call to arms to be more than mediocre. And it's also got this thing of like, do I even know what the Mecca is that I'm going for? Mm -hmm. Like, or have you, I I just had this email exchange with someone who was like, um, I don't know how to position my, you know, I do this thing. I don't know how to position myself in a valuable way doing this thing. And I, and I said, well, and I emailed back, well, why did you go into it in the first place? And I was hoping she was going to have some sort of story about, what inspired her to choose this sort of career path or this special area of specialization. And she said, I never really did. I just kind of fell into it and graduated and got offered a job and took it. And now it's 15 years later. Mm. And I was like, okay. And then I was like, well, what, <laughs> why did you stick with it? And, you know, we haven't finished the conversation, but I was looking for some, you know, like what, what was the point? You know, yeah. was it, was there, did you want to help people in this particular way? Did you feel a real sense of mastery around the subject or you thought you could really make a difference or something like that? And so the, the kind of the, the quick summary you just gave of the dip, it also includes of those other two things. It also includes this kind of like knowing what your goal is, like what you're even trying to be best at and knowing what mm-hmm. you think either the impact or the outcome or what's on the other side of the dip and being aware of that. Like, cognizant of what the what's the point are you trying to get into the nba are you trying to get a ted talk like like what are some examples of um what might lie on the other side of the dip that would make it worth slogging through because there's always that slog well i think the other thing is i just want to speak out for the people who are going best in the world I'm just trying to like get by every day, right? <laughs> what, what is this best in the world? And one of the things that I loved about this book is that he talked a lot about what does best in the world really mean? Well, it means what we talk about is the world that you're defining for yourself. So you don't have to be the best marketer in the world, but you could be, you know, the best 
uh, brand strategists to consumer product companies who want to conquer Japan, mm -hmm. right? The Japanese market. I mean, you define your world in such a way that it is, you know, small enough for you to own, but big enough to be the best in the world, right? Right. It's, I mean, it's essentially a positioning thing. Yeah. Right. It really so, is. Yeah. And there, there, it comes down to, you know, we've, we probably don't need to go into the positioning etch-a-sketch again, or the specialization etch-a-sketch. <laughs> we've talked about that a lot, but but that's that's the thing. It's like compete. Uh, another, just to we'll probably talk about Seth a lot in this episode. In the marketing seminar, he talks about positioning in a different way than we usually do, but it's not completely dissimilar. Where he's like, you know, compete on an axis where where your competitor specialize in something that none of your competitors are competing on. Mm -hmm. So like. Like what's the, I think the example he gives is where, you know, there's all these sort of Hershey, you know, companies that make chocolate bars and they're all sort of competing in these two dimensions of like maybe convenience and price or flavor and price, uh, something like that. And then along comes this bespoke chocolate bar that's not competing on either of those. It's, it's the most expensive mm -hmm. and it's just competing like Vosges or something. That wasn't the example, but and it's mm -hmm. just competing in a completely different uh, angle and and therefore can command much higher prices but they created their own white space so like well and yep. we don't have to go too far into it but if you look at the i hate using the word competitors but the other people in your brand neighborhood the other people who are sort of doing what you do then and finding and being like well everybody does this you know it's like how could i be the best at this and it's like well specializing is the path because you can create like you said create your own world where you're the only one so it's like you're the yeah. worst in the world too because you're the only one that does it <laughs> <laughs> right so it, well, it, i think it definitely includes some kind of specialization yeah well and you know there was something you said in the book i, I wrote down because i thought it was a great quote if you're not going to get to number one you might as well quit right now and that sounds like a really tough statement. And again, I can feel all the imposter syndrome people going, oh, I better go quit and find something else. Bull is what you want is you want to find something that has that tug, has that pull that if you visualize this dip as being the hard trek across the desert, that you're willing to do it because it's worth it. Mm hmm. It's worth it. It's worth it in terms of your emotional connection to the outcome. It's worth it in terms of the transformations you deliver to your ideal people. It's worth it in terms of the business you can build for yourself and the amount of revenue that you can make for the time that you spend. I mean, it's it's all of those things. And uh, the, the expression he used um, for those things that are not quite right is a cul-de-sac. Right. right. When you have a cul-de-sac, you're like, oh, yeah, there's no way I need to turn around and go right back out. And kind of the <laughs> faster that you identify that it's a cul-de-sac, the faster you can get your, you know what, out of there and yeah. into something that is worthy of traveling a dip. Mm. It's just reminded me of a talk I created. A, a people invited me to do, give a weird talk. So some, uh, I don't think we've mentioned this here before, but I did a talk recently that was a very weird one. It was specifically requested by this group and it had to do, it was sort of inspired by AI and the title was like reinventing yourself in the age of AI kind of thing, mm -hmm. but it really wasn't about AI. It was more about the reinventing yourself part, which I've done several times and, 
and so I, and I never really thought about it. It always comes up that I used to be a musician and blah, 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 but I've never really examined it. And so I did in order to give this talk. And I noticed that with each phase, it was roughly 10 years long for me with each phase of my call it career path. I, there was always this eureka moment at the beginning where I just, I knew this is what I want. Mm-hmm. And then there, there would be a period of excitement where I got obsessed about the thing and the excitement of that carries you through or carried me through to a bunch of different other things that they don't all happen at once. They, for me, have never happened at once. And it's very, it's really, it's kind of the dip. It's kind of the same thing where things start to get hard. Yeah. So you get this excitement thing happening and I would obsess over whatever it was, playing guitar, coding, consulting, uh, hourly billing is nuts, that stuff. And I'll start obsessing over it. And then these milestones would start happening. And mm-hmm. that would sort of, you know, like little things that you put in public that people react positively to. So you get these little milestones to build up. And then your identity is like a lagging indicator of the milestones. So you've been obsessing and then you've got these milestones that start happening. And you get, it feeds the excitement. Your identity starts to shift from what it was before to what it is now. And then <laughs> maybe profitability starts to happen and it needs to because if you're spending Mm -hmm. all of your time doing this thing you need to have a way to put cheerios in the bowl so you have to start making money from it somehow unless you know unless you're going to be like a you know a mail carrier during the day and you're going to be a musician at night you got to figure out a way to sustain the activities of your obsession and I i kept on coming back to this word excitement which is kind of like what you just said where you need to have enough excitement about the thing that kind of for no other reason you can't help doing it at least for me like i I have always found that has always been the case like four through four decades that has always been the case that the excitement carries me through to milestones and then like identity profitability that stuff starts to happen sort of post facto well it's it's the fuel it's the fuel that, yeah. that passion is gives you energy. And I think the the challenge becomes what is worth that energy? Because yep. what'll happen is when some people hit the a difficult point in the dip, all of a sudden passion isn't enough. It's like exactly. I, I have to I have to do this work and it's hard. And I'm thinking of a, a mutual friend of ours working on her book that just commented about that and the editing phase. It's like, oh my God, this is so hard. Like, it's like, it's a cat's cradle of all these things that I put together in a 200 page piece without repeating myself. And my, my reaction was, yeah, that's why not everybody writes a book. It's hard. It's like, you really have to be focused on your audience on the other end to get through that. And, and let's face it. I mean, what we're talking about here is expertise. We're not talking about, um, like doing a founder thing where we're taking money from VCs and we have constant pressure to sell a thing. And we don't have that kind of pressure. It's different, but it's still, there is still a dip with everything that we do. And it's really important that we recognize it and decide whether this is the thing that is worth the dip. And sometimes, you know, it's just a little tiny dip and we're so excited, we don't even care. It's like, oh, I can do that, no problem. I can I can start a podcast even though I hate the sound of my own voice. No, I can do it, I can do it. And then you keep going and then you get, maybe you get to the book and you go, oh, no, 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 I can't, I can't do that. I can't make myself write a book. Um, mm-hmm. So. That's, I mean, that's really the challenge is getting through that, that piece Mm -hmm. and knowing that it's worth it on the other side. Right. Just, well, I would 
tweak that slightly believing that it'll be worth it on the other side because there's a certain yeah. there's risk right yeah true it's like every decision you make is a bet you don't you know there's no guarantee right so it's a bet and yeah. you can have a, a good bet a bad bet you can stack the cards in your favor but you're still it's still a bet and you know it it might not work and part of the excitement thing is that you don't care right you kind of don't ca- mm-hmm. like look i'm tr- gonna try yeah you know that's how I felt when I did my first business because I was a very successful consultant in a big firm. I was a partner. I'd been asked to buy additional stock early on. Like I had a vested interest in that. And I just looked at it and went, Oh my God, do I want to keep doing this till I'm 60? I don't, I don't think I can do it. It was just, and it, it wasn't even that it was the dip so much is that it wasn't, it wasn't my place. I felt like I was really, really good at what I did. I was a really good consultant. I was really good at helping clients. But it's like, is this the way I want to do it without real control and having my moves be subject to the whims of somebody else? No, that's not what I do. It took took 10 years to get to that point. But yeah. And so then there was the excitement of starting the business. I mean, that was incredible. And then there were dips. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and there were dips. And at some point I said, you know what, I'm ready to sell this and go on to the next thing. So mm-hmm. it's a it's a very organic kind of a thing. It's not like you only have like one chance in your life to do this <laughs> one big thing. You have multiple, multiple chances. And that's what I think is so interesting for people in the expertise space. We, and we can tweak it. We can say, oh, yeah, I, I was focusing on marketing, but really I'm more interested now in branding. Or I'm more interested in positioning. I mean, you can just keep narrowing or you can narrow the people that you serve. So you find that, you know, that just perfect sweet spot for you. And pretty much nobody gets that right the first time because you've got to experiment and see what works for you in a good way. Right, right. <laughs> not, not the nightmare kind. Right. Yeah, there's like, there's a certain, when you described those those two particular jumps, that uh, it reminded me, it sounded like it felt this way to you and it, And it certainly felt this way to me with my kind of half pivots or my tweaks to my positioning when I was going from coder to consultant, where inside of the coder world, you know, I started out barely like you'd be a stretch to call me a coder when I was doing FileMaker. But I was thinking like a coder, even though I wasn't writing code, Um, I was building FileMaker databases and then and then into PHP and then more broadly into web stuff and then mobile web. And it felt like these S curves where if you imagine a graph where there's like a, a big learning curve, a steep learning curve in the middle, a lot of times that's where a dip's going to happen because that's where it's a real slog. And then it kind of like levels out at the top and you, you're you at, I would always find myself at the bottom of the next S curve. And I did that like three or four <laughs> times while I was a coder in the, the 20 years that I was coding and then into consulting. It was like these S curves that built on that, that sort of the new one picked up where the last one left off kind of mm-hmm. yeah that that's pretty that's, common I, I think so it, it's it also felt pretty predictable it felt reliable it was like well i'm not not really i always called my half pivot because I'd, I'd keep one foot in the old world and one foot in the i'd put one foot in the new world while i was kind of building the new thing building the new reputation and it was it wasn't it felt very um Pretty yeah, safe. It felt predictable and safe and fun. And it's like, oh yeah, I want to, you know, like I, I, I love FileMaker. It got me to where I am, but I felt like I was at a, the top of a ladder, and so I like reached over and grabbed the bottom of the next ladder and climbed up that. And then when you know, and then in 
I guess it was 20, it, uh, the year doesn't matter. But then when I mentally, when I decided I was going to go all in on pricing, I was like, that was a complete, that was a huge leap. There's an, there's another visual we can use for this. And I wish I could credit the person who developed this. I can't think, I think he wrote a whole book about this, but if you imagine like a normal distribution curve, so it's that, it's yeah. that upside down you. Mm-hmm. So the, the, challenge and and it was written about products and and company life cycles so the challenge is what happens with a product is we we hit the top point and then we start going down and nobody really wants to change a successful product until it starts going down Hmm. and when it starts going down they just maybe tinker a little bit and then the trajectory gets the downward trajectory gets faster and faster and it's harder to fix that product because it's going down. So mm-hmm. th- his his thesis was you want to fix it when you're still on the way up or you're at the very top, which is the hardest time to make a change. And that's what was striking me as you were talking. It's yeah. in some cases you 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 did the next curve up at the very top and then in another one you didn't wait. Yeah. And and you can argue that that's even easier. Because it's the, the more entrenched you are in everything being fabulous and making a ton of money and all that, the harder it is to then yeah. go, oh, I want to go to the next one. I wonder if that was Innovator's Dilemma. Don't remember. Clayton Christensen. I never read that book, unbelievably, but it kind of sounds like that. I, I actually didn't either. I just, um, I think it was an old business partner who shared that diagram with me and it was it just made so much sense and they, i think the example they used was jello <laughs> like all the different life uh, lifespans that jello has had and the way that they marketed it so um yeah but it's it, you think about it especially in organizations i know that's not really our audience but where where things are entrenched it's harder to make a change yep. and when things are good and entrenched ugh, i mean forget it, it bureaucracy takes takes over but the people we're talking about, by and large, are soloists or boutique firm owners, and we have a lot more flexibility and ability to change on a dime. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's an, another thing that I want to sort of touched on, which is that this kind of happens at all different levels. So it would, and I think they can contribute, like small things contribute to big things. But like you mentioned, someone working on a book, that's that's like a, a that is a marathon i mean that is you know you're halfway through that and you're like what what was i thinking this is the worst thing ever <laughs> I, like i'm never going to do this again Touché. you know yeah it, but but it's all things considered it's um i mean people write some people write a book a year it's not like a it's not mm-hmm. a 10-year project hopefully <laughs> so it's so it's smaller compared to building a business let's say or or maybe even i mean it's probably a component of building your authority but the overall authority thing is a more of a career spanning could be a 10 or 20 year or longer Mm -hmm. kind of um, race is the wrong word but process I guess where you're probably going to have dips in different areas along the way I don't know how do you I don't I haven't read I read the the dip probably like five or ten years ago so maybe with it fresher in your mind how much does he talk about the kind of like the size, you know what I mean? You mean the size of the market? The magnitude of the thing that you're trying to be the best at. Well, startup e or it it is. I mean, his it felt like his audience were people who are doing traditional startups with external funding. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, but he did, you know, he did talk a lot about like what's on the other side for you, like being number one. I think I think one of the there were only like three chapters. I think one of the chapter is being number one is vastly underrated. And I think he compared like, the, you know, like the number one positioning in a few different industries to the number two and number three. And it's it's a crazy distribution, like to the victor go the spoils. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, like Google and search. I mean, it's just, come on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and in expertise, I think it's a little bit different because it's not like like one person just corners the market on everything. But it's probably true that the top, you know, one to five are cornering a good 90% of the the dollars. I mean, I've never done a study of this, but it feels like that should at least be true in most of the niches we're talking about. Right. Yeah, it seems I would agree with that, but again, just that's gut instinct. Yeah, yeah, it's totally gut. That'd be an interesting thing to study. Yeah, it would be. It would be. But the reason why is like when someone's asking around for, it's like, hey, do you know anybody that can help me with this expensive problem? People can only have there are only so many names they're going to hear. And like mm-hmm. you said, it's you know when I I was hyper aware of this when I was doing mobile consulting because there were only like two other people doing it, and only one of them was like a, you know, a sort of solo consultant. The other one was running a, a business that was different. And, and it was like, or maybe maybe there were four people who's be like, oh, we need a mobile expert. There was like four names that would come up mm-hmm. and, and very and, and of that list, only like two or maybe three of us did consulting at all. Well, one of the examples he used in the book was, um, oh, I, I can't remember the real life athlete, but somebody who like played baseball and basketball and something else like as a, as a little kid and then got into I guess junior high and maybe played two and um, it might have been no he wouldn't have been around then anyway and then um, and, and tennis and then they wound tennis. up being like a, a world-ranked tennis player yeah because they're like oh gee I can be better at this and so you know you think about it most parents will say oh it's great to have a well-rounded kid you know play football play basketball play volleyball whatever it is um, but by focusing on that sport especially now right you have to really focus on a sport at a very young age to be successful at, at the world level and so you know the, this person he was talking about focused and chose one thing and in sports in dance those things are anything that's really physical those things you, you can argue they're even more important because you have a very short lifespan of being able to be a professional athlete and we've got some people mm. pushing the boundaries into their 40s but usually by about 35 you're done <laughs> right you're done so you could be the best in the world but it's going to be over around 35 it, or sooner if you have injury with our kinds of specialties they can go on forever i mean i have some clients i worked with um, who are now in their 80s <laughs> and they are still doing this stuff and they're doing it for love i mean they love it and they've got a big idea on how they want to change the world and they get up every day and you know they don't work all day every day but they get up every day and go huh i wonder what i can do today to do this and they are still crossing some dips and mm. they do it with joy in their 80s <laughs> so yeah we, we we've got a lot of advantages over the the physical professions yeah i'm curious i'm curious about those that those i think it's two guys right like it is yeah they they come up from time to time has their overall how much has their overall focus changed in say the you know the time that you've been working with them 
or is, are they going deeper down the same rabbit hole or are they going from rabbit hole to rabbit hole? No, they're going broader. So they, when, when we first met, they wanted to, their question was, can we create a business out of this? And the answer was yes. And I helped them do that. And so they made money and they did that. And then they said, you know, all right, we've done all that. We, we don't need money. Like we have, we have, they actually had retirements from other jobs and they had, you know, this money from this business. They're like, we don't care about the money anymore. What we care about is our big idea. So how can we align with other people to make this big idea happen? And in fact, to their credit, they just made what I think was a bold move in aligning with someone and an organization where they're probably not going to get very much credit for what mm-hmm. happens. But it's someone that has an amazing amount of influence and a platform. And so they said, hey, we don't care who gets the credit. We want this thing to get done. And they're not looking to make money from this. Right. So I mean, yeah, it's a totally different place than most of our, our listeners, and certainly myself as well, are. But it's it's a look at where, if you feel passionately about what you're doing or what you pivot to doing, I, you might do this till the end of your days. Mm. That brings up an interesting point. So in, I did a little bit of research before recording this episode, and I found an article on Seth's blog where someone had someone who had attended one of his talks about the tip dip wrote a maybe more nuanced kind of kinds of dips. He wrote an article of kinds of dips, and and Seth republished it because he thought it was really good. And there were. Uh, a couple of different kinds of, uh, what was it, kinds of, I forget what the metaphor was like, like what kind of ride you're on. So, so, and this writer whose name was Dr. Ernie, I, I didn't catch his last name, <laughs> but uh, he sort of defined joy rides like, like you're just there having fun. You're playing the flute because you like playing the flute. You're not trying to be the best flautist in the world. And that's fine. You know, it's like, that's whatever if if that's what you want to do that's great if you're having fun keep doing it it's not a question of like like the dip doesn't apply there really because you're not trying to go anywhere it's just like you're Mm -hmm. just having fun doing the thing and then there was on the other end of the spectrum was a quest which is what it felt like you were just talking about like that's what reminded me it's the the glorious quest that's how i think about it from the song it's the glorious quest and and you don't care those folks don't care about the dip either they're just like I'm just doing this like period. Mm-hmm. I'm just not going to stop doing this. And and then in the middle there was one that really reminded me of my experience in the music business which he dubbed the lottery. And mm. the lottery is where you like no matter how much grit and determination and and whatever and like long hard hours that you put in no matter how much that you do you just don't have that much influence over the outcome. You just have no control, you know, and he, Mm -hmm. he even talked about, you know, to use the sports metaphor, it's like in the lottery might have taken place before you were born. If you were, if you were born six, eight versus five, six, it's going to dramatic. There's nothing you can do about your height, for example. So if you're going to compete in an area where height is super important, whether it's a NBA player or jockey, then there's just nothing you can do about it, right? There's not. There's very, mm-hmm. very little you yep. can do to influence the outcome. And those, I have, after the music thing, I have studiously avoided lotteries. <laughs> it's like if there's... If there's They're annoying. Oh, it's the worst. And it puts you in the worst. It's the worst framing. It just makes you... 
your mental crazy. state is, it makes you crazy because yeah. you feel yeah. like you, you you've got if you're the kind of person who wants to do stuff you want to do stuff and you want to uh maybe let's say you're, i don't know i feel like acting is one of these like a hollywood movie star type of acting it's like mm-hmm. you end up there's nothing you can really do so you end up doing a bunch of things that may or may not have any impact on what you're doing but you obsess over these things you know it's the sort of rearranging chairs on the deck of the titanic because you feel like something needs to be done but really it's just luck and you should probably just wait and not do all those things <laughs> you know so the the lottery thing i see it i it's probably because i have a background in the performing arts but i know a lot of people who picked a lottery path and they're just constantly <sighs> plagued by self-doubt and uh and they're telling themselves stories and astrology and all of these things uh, and it's and when really the problem is they can't they can't produce there's just too much outside control over the situation the sort of gatekeeper thing yeah it's like you have to find a a niche where you can eke out a living without being subject to a lottery i mean i totally get the point and i think a lot of like the big big platform stars are now there's a little bit more where you can own your own music but that can also be a slide into mediocrity too right mm-hmm. you can just be doing that making twenty thousand dollars a year for the rest of your life and if you're happy that's awesome mm-hmm. but if you're not ugh. yeah so I don't want to go too far down. I, just just to give the example, I wanted to talk about that. But I feel like folks listening to this are just a totally different. They do have a lot. They're they're almost certainly not in a lottery situation. Yeah, I think I think it's just going to come back to niching or specializing, whatever you want to like focusing down on some on a on a demand that is so specific that you can reasonably decide to be the best in the world at this very specific thing, and then use the excitement of that to carry you through whatever dips you encounter which you will yeah we all do yeah it's that decision because it's not just the decision that i'm going to be the best it's the decision that i'm going to do what it takes to be the best which means you will get through the dip you will Mm. uh, write that book if that's if that's part of it um even though it's hard even though you struggle to write you know a thousand words you're going to figure out a way because you're so focused on the audience transformation on your the revolution that you're leading that you're willing to do whatever it takes yeah and it's putting yourself on a platform being on a podcast like whatever those things that are hard for you you will figure out how to make yourself do them if it's in service to something bigger Mm-hmm. That's why I like the glorious quest. I was thinking, yeah. I was looking at it going, where is that? Oh yeah, this it's the song, the glorious quest. That's yeah. like when it's it's very much of that you know sort of romantic ideal of the person on the horse riding off to to save the day, <laughs> right? To save the the castle or whatever the town, whatever it is. But it is very much of that. And when we tap into that feeling, it's pretty amazing. It generates a fair amount of energy yes. just on its own. That's my experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when, even with my with my own work and, and when I encounter people who have who are on a, a not a similar quest, but like on that kind of a mission, you know, like I think I, th- I think we interviewed Chris Doe on this show and he he's like, oh, I'm a mission to uh, help. I think he said a billion creatives love their job. Create no create a business. 
hit a billion to create a business as a creative. Yeah, as a creative, exactly. Yeah, and even you know, I'm sort of stumbling over the words, and like I couldn't remember it perfectly, but but I remember the feeling when he said it. It was very clear, and it was just like super huge, and 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 it and it clearly. Uh, well, I guess we're talking about the dip. I mean, the the excite the thing that I wanted to talk about is like the excitement piece is like changes all the decisions. Like if that's the goal, it's going to change all the uh, virtually every decision you make about you know tactical stuff like hiring and you know what platforms to be on and your business model and all these things. Well, and what's an opportunity versus what's a distraction? Yeah, exactly. Is this going to help yeah. me in this bigger goal? So I guess you know the way it relates to the dip is like with a goal that big and specific. It's very big, but it's also very specific. Then presumably, putting words in his mouth, but presumably that not only would help guide the decision making, but help get, I'm, I'm sh- surely with a big, a bigger business like than most people listening in terms of headcount, surely there's lots of dips, lots of challenges, lots of like, hmm, this is mm-hmm. not a fun week <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> sorts of yeah. things. Yeah, this um, product didn't sell very well. Right, or whatever. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's. I, I always listen. Like, I'll when somebody says something a certain way, I'll get goosebumps. And I remember getting them when he said the billion, because I'm like a billion. Like, if he said a million, I, would I've gotten goosebumps? I don't know. Maybe I don't know. But a billion, I mean, it's audacious. And so it's when somebody is that clear and that specific. If you're at all receptive to that message, now somebody who wasn't interested in a business probably wouldn't get goosebumps over mm-hmm. that. But yeah, it's like you get this feeling like I've heard something that is emotionally moving. That's yeah. that's kind of what we're talking about. Yeah. So right. So if you if you're like, is that I mean best in the way? Yeah. I mean in a sense, like he would be the only person that I'm aware of who has such a mission like such a goal like that kind of a goal so however close well, that, that says it out loud sure right that's yeah. the that's the part that's really cool right and it's like if if you you know if you flip it around to to my email person who se- seems like just kind of fell into uh i don't want to put her on the spot because i don't really know this if this is true but you know has been doing a job for a long time that she kind of fell into and never decided mm-hmm. then it's like well is there is there something there that you could, if you thought about it, you know, if you're in this situation where you kind of fell into a job and you've been doing it for 10 years and you know what you're doing, you feel like you're good at it, is is the, I feel, I feel like some introspection into why do I do this every day? Like, why do, is it just for the money or is there something bigger here? And identifying it would be, I think it's super helpful in your decisions and stick-to-itiveness. It's like, oh, well, there actually is a subconscious thing that that maybe you could uncover. If there is a subconscious thing yeah. that's caused you, wherever you find meaning in your work now, it's like, look at that and say like, oh, is there, can I think big about this instead of just showing up and doing what I'm supposed to do to keep my commitments? Like, is there a, a bigger thing here that I could focus on and and have some influence, you know, in making progress toward the goal? Yeah. I mean... One of the one of the ways to do that, just getting really tactical, is to start to think about when you look back over this chunk of your career, is to think about those defining experiences 
during mm-hmm. that time, both good and bad. The ones yeah. where you, you know, you love the project, you love the people, um, or you hated something about it. And those things, even if you just have three to five of each kind, mm-hmm. they will kind of help you focus in on where you're at your best and where you want to run for their hills. And that's <laughs> the beauty. There's no right or wrong. But, but yeah, and I think for people that sort of fell into something or maybe like, you know, your, your parents wanted you to be a lawyer and here you are 10 years later going, I hate this. I really wanted to be a doctor or I really wanted to be a veterinary technician, like whatever those things are. Yeah, that's, and it's funny that you said earlier, 10 years, this person said 10 years, a friend of mine when we were starting out our careers together, well, she was 10 years ahead of me, but she said, oh, I think every 10 years, and she defined her career, and it's worked that way her whole career. Every 10 years, she shifts to something else. Mm. I think we just get to the point where, you know, it's time to, it doesn't have to be a full pivot, but maybe we pivot, you know, a little bit. Mm-hmm. We do something yeah, different. I get, yeah, I uh, I meet a lot of people who have this, I don't think everyone's like this, but I meet a lot of people who enjoy the learning curve of a mm-hmm. new yeah. thing and when it when the s curve starts to tail off at the top it gets really hard it's just like ugh, you, you feel like you're repeating yourself or you feel like you haven't learned anything new in months where yeah. before it used to be like you know this sort of eureka moments all the time like very exciting it's like uh like a, a wind in your sails where you don't you just hang on for dear life and it's like pushing you forward and it's so exhilarating and then and then it's not like that anymore because you've kind of mapped out the territory. Uh, you're just now you're maybe you're in execution mode uh, or expedition mode, as we've talked about in the past, where it's just like, OK, just chop wood, carry water. It's not as much fun. You know, does that take 10 years? For me, it has seemed to. It seems to like almost 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 exactly so. I, I did it in three once, like mm-hmm. when I was first starting out because I, I was my first job was just like weird. I couldn't wait to get out of there. But my second job was kind of administrative and I liked it because I was learning something. And then we were doing these projects where we brought consultants in and they were really fun. And then the project was over and I went, oh, my God, this is the job. Like people do this for the rest of their lives. <laughs> Ugh. And so, of course, I went to the consultants and said, what would it be like to be a consultant in your firm? Can you tell me more? <laughs> and yeah. yeah, and the the second I finished my MBA, I went I went to consulting. But um, yeah, it's I think you you know you look for those changes and you look yeah yeah I mean people who are excited about learning make great experts and future authorities, mm. right? Because you just want to know more and more and more. Um, and when you're knowing more and more and more about a vertical in some way, then it makes you more valuable too. You're mm-hmm. not just like the Renaissance person who knows you know, <laughs> a, a lot about a few things and a little bit about a lot, but you're someone with deep knowledge and that right. makes you really valuable from a business perspective. Yeah, there's something we've touched on a couple of times that I just want to call out, which is it's super important to be aware of how you feel. Like your feelings about this stuff are incredibly important. So like if you, you know, if you start your day and you're looking at your calendar and you're excited about the stuff or you're not excited about the stuff, like that's an important piece of data. And if you, you know, if you look ahead or you look back, it'd be like, oh, you know, in other words, to, to detect, use it like a compass to be like, detect if you perhaps 
are in a cul-de-sac or if you perhaps are like, you know what, I don't, you know, I, I don't know what to do or I don't know what change to make. I mean, your feelings are almost the ultimate guide where, mm -hmm. where you're like, yeah. uh, you can be like, oh, I'm like, I'd be, what would I be super excited to do today? And you're like, all right, now how do I create a universe in maybe 18 months or something where I can do that all day? Yes. And yeah. And like knowing that that is, it's a very directional, very useful where a lot of times it's not uncommon for me to work with someone who has just their compass is like, how much money can I make at this? Mm -hmm. Like, can I make enough money at this to get by? And it's not, it's not even a question of, or it's, it's very low priority, like how they're going to feel about it. It's, it's in there. Right. Like, right. oh, I, I don't think I want to be an accountant or I don't think I want to be a consultant or I don't think I would like being a, whatever, you know, a jan whatever, it doesn't matter, an architect, anything. It's like, I, I don't think I would like that, but there's a massive number of things that I can make good money at that, that it's as long as I can make the money, you know, I'll, I'll be, I could be a CPA or something, or I could be, uh, I don't know, a chiropractor. Mm -hmm. uh, but they, and they were thinking more about the trappings of it. So like the money, perhaps yep. the status, uh, yep. maybe they've got a family and they're thinking about, oh, well, this will, this will keep the promises that I made. In other words, like this, this will support the lifestyle that I've kind of promised that we won't have to backtrack and like, you know, go live in a car. So it can take a lot of boxes, but if you're used to, if you're used to thinking about that stuff and not thinking about, like, if you've only ever, ever had jobs that you didn't really like, it might sound like a foreign concept to be like, well, are you excited to get out of bed in the morning? It's like, well, no, that's, it's called work for a reason. As a long reason. as I'm getting, making more money every year, I'm going to keep getting out of bed to yeah. make the more money. Yeah. And it's not. So it can take some time to like detect your actual feelings about like, yeah, but is this how I want to spend my life? <laughs> well, and it also, I mean, you know, I, I went into my first career, it was all about the money. Like I, I came from nothing. So I wanted to have enough money so I didn't have to worry. I wanted a roof over my head, but it took me maybe five years to figure out. And I, you know, I, I did well as a, as a, you know, a new entrant to the workforce, but it took me about five years to go, Oh, my, my original goal was I wanted to be the first woman CEO of General Motors. That was my first okay. one. And I was like, oh, and I worked for a General Motors supplier. And I was like, oh, no, this is not where I want. This is not the kind of thing I want to be doing. But yeah, but but you learn that and then you go, oh, OK, yeah. So I need a certain amount of money, but it isn't just about the money. It's about how I feel about it. It's about the good that I'm doing. It's about, am I excited to get up, you know, most mornings, maybe not every morning, but you know, most mornings, those yeah, are the those things. Dip mornings. <laughs> yeah. The dip mornings. Yeah. I had a couple of those. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's, you know, a way to think about it. And I think that it's not just age, but experience is that you, the more experience you get with different things, the more, you know, what you like and what you don't. Mm -hmm. and and the kinds of people that you want to work with and the kinds of people that you don't mm -hmm. yeah that's yeah. funny like in my music career i can phase i should say phase uh i specifically wanted to be like on mtv because this was like the height i was a teenager mm -hmm. at the height of mtv and i specifically wanted to be a famous musician like and that was the extent of my it was extremely naive because i didn't even know what that meant. I had no idea what the life of a what's famous musician was like. I just imagined the sort of fantasy, which is absolutely not 
real. <laughs> I would go insane if I couldn't go into a supermarket without being bothered. You know what I mean? That would be a terrible fit for me. Never mind all of the slogging years when it's like being on tour with a band and having like five guys sweat socks in your face, like <laughs> sleeping in a Stucky's parking lot. No, 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 thank you. Grew out right? of that, did you? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> shocking. So anyway, so that that your story about like I want to be the the you know first CEO of General Motors, it's like. Did you even know what that meant? <laughs> you know, it's like no. Right, I just thought know. that would be so awesome. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, yeah. it's, it's like it's like me being. I want to be on MTV. It's like, what? Yeah, no, really? Yeah, yeah. So I guess what we're talking about here is like, <laughs> as we reminisce about our past, precisely yeah. is is like, well, what path are you on? Like, because I'm sure there are people who haven't really thought about it too much. So maybe think about it. Like, what what is the what's on the other side? Yeah, what's the even just what's the next rung? Because that is probably going to narrow your focus a little bit more mm-hmm. from where you are. And if if you keep that question in the front of your mind, it's going to get answered. Like if you, <laughs> yes. is, I mean seriously, because it's like I if know. you're not thinking about it, or you're thinking about you know how bad the dip is that you're in, that maybe is really a cul-de-sac that you need to get out of. And um, when you start asking yourself that question, like you could just ask yourself that before you go to sleep or the first thing when you wake up and then don't think about it anymore because your subconscious will work on it and you'll start to notice, I don't like doing this. Mm-hmm. I love doing this. And and when you suspend this idea, oh, I can't make money at that, but just focus, just pay attention to what it is. And then inevitably you will find a way if, if you want it badly enough um, because the um, the quest, the glorious quest is so glorious that you're willing to do whatever it takes to get to that. That's when you know you've got it. Right. And and that's why we at the beginning, we sort of like accidentally thought we were going to call this how to be the best in the world. And then we realized right before the show that, it, no, it's about, this is not about how to, it's deciding to. Yeah. You know, picking something that you can be the best in the world at, that you want to be the best in the world at. And then the cul-de-sac becomes a dip instead of a cul-de-sac. It's like, if you, if you, it's kind of like deciding not to be mediocre is another way, sort of a harsher way to put it. It's like, I'm not going to be mediocre at this. Or at what? What am I not going to be mediocre at? And it also, I think, gives you this sort of internal permission to act as if, right? As if I already am the best in the world. So if I was the best in the world, what would I do right now? Yes. I might write this. I might go do that. I might talk to these people. And it's mm-hmm. it's that it's once you make that decision, everything starts to help you to implement it. And the, yep. you know, the, it's not fake it till you make it. I don't I don't really like that expression, but it's as if like what if I were already there, what would I be doing right now? Right. It's recognizing that that any success that you see, whatever, you, however you define that, is almost surely not an overnight success. And you're just in the f- 10 years to, <laughs> to leading up to the overnight success. You're just in the 10-year part. Yeah, exactly. I love those overnight successes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 10 years in the making. I How did know, you have such a good launch? Well, I, I wrote a daily email for five years. So step one, if you want to have a good launch, <laughs> write a daily email for five years and do 600 podcast episodes. One simple trick. <laughs> having a successful launch i know i know <laughs> cool well since i i can detect by our reminiscing about our past that we've probably yes we <laughs> <too long. laughs> 
People are going to be snoring at this point. We yeah. need to stop. Well, I mean, you could probably get the audio version of the dip and it'd be shorter than this episode. So maybe that's the best place to go because it is good. It's it's actionable. It really is. Mm-hmm. It really is. I, yes. I I don't know why I hadn't read it up to now. And and it's, I mean, you could read it in, in a sitting if you wanted to. Yeah. Another good one that I think is related is Quit by Annie Duke, who I think is just great. Her Thinking in, Bet, best, Thinking in Bets book is like mm-hmm. the best book I read that year. It was just so, so mind-blowing. Um, but Quit is also really good. And if that is something, if this episode is resonating with you, I, I would try both of those books. I think it'd be worth your while. All right. On that note, let's wrap her up. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, that is it for this week. I'm Jonathan Stark. And I'm Rochelle Moulton. And we hope you join us again next time for the Business of Authority. Bye. Bye Bye-bye.